0: just a heads up, this episode contains me rambling about the meaning of life or the lack of meaning of life. So if you can't handle that right now, I just wanted to warn you. On this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I'm big. My mind is big. How do you stay in touch with the world outside the prison tonight? I'm thinking the world outside the prison. I renounce my class privilege with the brainwashed arrest theory of the pig herd has always amused me. You were snatching people just like that. Just snatching them off the street and getting them deprogrammed. Started questioning me and telling me that I needed to be deprogrammed. I said, From what? Life is empty and meaningless, and it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. This is the mantra that I was taught at 10 years old as part of a self help program that I won't name here because they've sued people who call it a cult, which I'm truly not. During the first course of an increasingly expensive series, a hundred of us kids sat in long arched rows for long 12-hour days around the person who we called the leader. This leader promised us freedom from the chains of the 10-year-old self and provided a path to self-actualization through an examination and healing of traumas, big and small, and a philosophy of self-mind control, that we can change who we are if we're really willing to look. Fast forward four years, and I'm there again, this time in the teen program, surrounded by another hundred peers. But this time, by the end of the session, I am weeping like someone born again. I feel saint-like, saved, soaked in love, and the world around me glowed harshly with a cutting beauty. I'd figured it out. My anxiety and depression had disappeared just like that. A feeling that, much to my disappointment, quickly faded away. Nonetheless, I went back again as a 16-year-old, the first time they let someone under 18 into this adult course. This time, things were different. This time, from the moment I entered among the mostly middle-aged men and women who blinked blankly at me, I felt it in my gut. The fear was only proven correct by the leader of this group, a lanky and tense man who yelled through his lecture, calling randomly on participants at his will to answer very personal questions in front of everyone. I shrunk in my seat. And then, a woman in her mid-30s was called on stage and interrogated by the leader until she conjured, maybe even falsely recovered, a memory of her father saying he was disappointed with her at a t-ball game. That's a fine and maybe important discovery about the self, but this was not a simple revelation to her. It was not just an interesting piece to a larger emotional puzzle because it was not set up that way. The leader had called her on stage to first remember something painful, and then process her trauma live. She sobbed, doubled over, and wept in the fetal position in front of a hundred people, and I was done right then and there. But it wasn't that simple. At the beginning, we were broken into groups of ten, and we officially became responsible for those people. That night, out at dinner, I was probably the only one under 30, and I meekly spoke to my group at a long table in a local restaurant. I have to go. This isn't right for me, I tried to explain. I was met with a sudden anger that shocked me, a woman whose name I will never forget, Peggy, came at me venomously. She said I was betraying the group. How could I do this to them? That I was quitting out of fear that I would never be happy if I didn't stay in the course and that I was making them look bad in front of the leader. Predictably, I started crying in front of everyone, full of guilt and confusion and fear, But no one said anything. They just stared at me vacantly with this hint of annoyance as Peggy continued to rail on me. I told them I had to go to the bathroom and got up. And when I did, I was followed by a middle-aged man from the group who told me, don't listen to her. This is weird. Why don't you get out of here? God bless. So I did immediately. I walked back to the facility and gathered my things, and for anyone out there that's a My Favorite Murder fan, I called my dad. I was nervous because much of my family had been involved in this group for years, but my stepdad heard it in my voice and he immediately got in the car. I told the other two leaders I was leaving, that I didn't feel safe or even remotely okay being yelled at this way by this man, waiting in apprehension for when my name would be called. Then, and maybe this is a little hyperbolic in my memory, I don't know, they actually casually cornered me in what felt like a cartoonish moment, my back against a wall, telling me I needed to uncover whatever trauma made me scared of the leader. And then, out the window I saw him, my hero showed up in an almost golden light, valiant in an SUV, and I walked away from them without looking back. He bought me a gas station ice cream sandwich and I tried in vain to stop crying. It was over, but it wasn't. Sitting in the back seat of my friend's car days later, I burst into tears for what seemed like no reason. I was jumpy, nervous, guilty, kind of sick for a few weeks." A disclaimer featured on their website proves that I'm not alone and that other members, quote, have reported experiencing brief, temporary episodes of emotional upset, ranging from heightened activity, irregular or diminished sleep, to mild psychotic-like behavior. An even smaller number of people have reported more serious symptoms, ranging from mild psychotic behavior to psychosis, occasionally requiring medical care and hospitalization. In less than 1 out of a 1,000 of 1% of participants, there have been reports of unexplained suicide and other destructive behavior. And yet, it's vital to point out that the other teenage family friends I went there with had an extremely positive experience, and so have their parents, and so have most of my family. I've seen some truly amazing things come out of that program, and I have to admit that it really did open my mind to a lot of new possibilities about myself. That's the thing. These kind of programs, this kind of mind control that we assert ourselves— can be freeing, or it can be imprisoning. It can produce both love and terror, even at the same time. For our season finale on Mind Control, I know y'all want cults, 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 but we've been inundated with every kind of media on that subject already, and like usual, we're going to go in a slightly different direction, but there'll be some cult stuff too. We're gonna start with the changing philosophies of psychology and how we understood our own consciousness, and then how that lent credence to the Cold War beginnings of a concept called brainwashing that apparently led American soldiers to defect and become communist sleeper agents. Then we'll see how the government reacted to these terrifying revelations, implementing their own mind control program, MKUltra, featuring a ton of acid and torture. Then we'll look at the human potential movement that changed everything about the way we think about thinking, or rather not thinking, and then the shock of its darkest children, the Manson family. We'll learn about heiress-turned-domestic terrorist Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped by radical leftists known as the Sibonese Liberation Army. We'll explore a man named Ted Patrick and his anti-cult movement that sometimes used abusive techniques to deprogram cult members. And then we'll ask some controversial questions about these new-age psychological techniques that are so popular to this day. I'll also share a little more about my own personal journey, both the negative and positive versions of mind control that have graced my life. Okay, Chelsea, deep and cleansing breaths. You're almost done with the season. Okay, friends, just like always, let's do it together. Since the 1920s, in a theory that's still used today, Sigmund Freud laid out the psyche like this. The id is the animalistic part of us, the instinctual part that's not favored by society. The superego is the part of us that monitors society's expectations for us. And the ego is who we feel we are, that voice in our head that tries to balance the id's base desires with the superego's cultural norms. Emerging after Freud's theory, another school of thought was popularized by John B. Watson called behaviorism, which purports that outside forces are what govern personality and behavior, with all infants beginning with a blank slate. In behaviorism, there's no such thing as free will. It's our families, environments, situations, and other conditions that produce unconscious responses and then give an illusion of choice. At this point, we find a couple famous experiments conducted to test this theory. Dr. Ian Pavlov famously conditioned his dogs to associate a ringing bell with receiving their food by initiating the sound each time they were fed. After a few sessions, the dogs demonstrated symptoms of hunger, like salivation, each time they heard the bell. In response, John Watson created a more controversial experiment and published his findings in 1921. He used an infant he called Little Albert to attempt to create a negative association. He wanted to prove that he could control a young mind by creating a phobia. He exposed little Albert to a cute white lab rat that he was allowed to play with. But after a time, the psychologist began banging loudly with a hammer on a steel bar every time Albert touched the rat. It worked. Through further tests, the child's conditioned fear extended out beyond the rat to things that resembled the rat, like white rabbits, dogs, a furry coat, and even a Santa Claus mask with a cotton ball beard. News of this experiment, which has been mostly written off now as interesting but unprovable, proved at the time that nefarious outside forces could actually manipulate our behavior. It's a mystery to this day who little Albert really was, and so researchers were unable to figure out if this phobia did indeed last into adulthood. Nevertheless, as this new brand of psychology became a normal perspective, the fear of mind control would be sparked on enemy territory during the heightened nerves of the Cold War era. Off the highway, the Allied ambulances swing on the last long mile to Freedom Village. One after another in their clumsy blue-quilted Chinese army uniforms, the prisoners come, freed from a life in the shadows. The American government believed that political leaders had created a mass hypnosis of the entire Chinese citizenship using mystical elements of ancient Chinese magic. A blaring 1950 headline in the Miami Journal read, quote, brainwashing techniques force Chinese into ranks of Communist Party. The journalist behind this article was a man named Edward Hunter, who would go on to coin the term brainwashing in his 1956 book, which he said could, quote, change a mind radically so that its owner becomes a living puppet, a human robot without the atrocity being visible from the outside. And then, out of nowhere, American prisoners of war began confessing to crimes that they never actually committed. They confessed to spraying anthrax over civilian centers, and they even admitted to dropping the plague on innocent Koreans. Eventually, petitions were signed by 5,000 of the 7,000 captured U.S. soldiers to end the war, and some even orated North Korean propaganda over the radio. 21 of the POWs would actually temporarily refuse the chance to return to America. But instead of ancient Chinese magic, there was a simple explanation for why these men were sudden communist sympathizers. Under intense and torturous conditions, they finally caved to their captors' demands. But pop culture seized on this idea of brainwashing and produced works like The Manchurian Candidate that presented sleeper agents, those who had been brainwashed by foreign governments, to all of a sudden snap at a trigger like a certain word or sound and become a hypnotized traitor ready to kill his fellow men. Research conducted at the same time would find that most of these brainwashed POWs returned to their normal thinking process after a few weeks at home, with the U.S. Army officially admitting in 1956 that this thing called brainwashing was a popular misconception. Nevertheless, of course, if brainwashing was a thing, the U.S. government was certainly not going to miss out on an opportunity like that, and they felt they could do it better. Then in 1953, the CIA launched the now infamous MKUltra program. Most of the documents of MKUltra were shredded in the 1970s after Watergate. But from what we know, the CIA basically wanted to do exactly what they thought their enemies were doing. And they set out to create a truth pill that would not only garner intel from Eastern spies, but would also brainwash them into allegiance with the West. The main tool in their arsenal? Of course, LSD. LSD. Psychologists also used sensory deprivation, long periods of isolation, verbal and even sexual abuse on anyone who was willing and many people who were unwilling. They even tested their LSD theories on other CIA agents, leading to at least one death when an agent was dosed without his knowledge and ended up committing suicide by jumping out a window. A bizarre poison expert named Sidney Gottlieb continued to lead the program, watching subjects through a two-way mirror while he sat on a portable toilet for hours drinking martinis from a pitcher he prepared for the day. He was the brains behind brainwashing, and his bizarre experiments earned him nicknames from his co-workers, such as the Black Sorcerer. The public wouldn't find out about these projects until the mid-70s, and by then they were already steeped in a kind of self-mind control, a kind of mindfulness or even mindlessness that they believed to be the one true path to world peace. In the midst of this panic over mystical Chinese brainwashing, Sigmund Freud's rogue protege, Carl Jung, was embracing a more mystical psychology himself. And beat writers like Allen Ginsberg, Gary Snyder, and Jack Kerouac began making hip the use of Eastern spirituality as an alternative to Christianity. I don't only worship Buddha. Whom, whom else? I worship Christ, and I worship Allah, and I worship Yahweh. Who is the father? Uh, I worship them all. Soon, the Beatles would be seen with long beards and prayer beads, photographed sitting at the feet of Indian gurus. Out of this, a new philosophical psychology was emerging, one that was quite different from behaviorism. This new philosophy promised that humans could control their own minds and could mold from within a kind of constant bliss, or at the very least, peace. The post-war generation's newfound affluence, leisure time, and access to education presented the new privilege of deep self-reflection and cultural reflection as well. Popular psychology, in order to keep up with the times, began centering around peak experiences that led to self-actualization. In 1962, the Esalon Institute opened in Big Sur, California, and would become the hub of what is now known as the Human Potential Movement. Esalon offered experimental workshops that had an Eastern spiritual bent, and it's still there to this day. I'm pretty sure Reese Witherspoon and Adam Scott go there in Big Little Lies to do that touch workshop. Especially on the West Coast, these new therapies began breaking cardinal laws of the therapist-patient relationship, creating a kind of intimacy that involved meditation, yoga, physical touch, and sometimes even drugs, and sometimes even sex. But none of this was brainwashing. Free your mind, man, became the popular refrain. For hundreds or even thousands of dollars, self-styled self-help gurus began offering courses ranging from the corporate and tame to the cultic. The return of a more Eastern, more radical version of Jesus began to emerge, and the middle class was attracted to these practices, sometimes trying to follow in his image, giving up their worldly possessions and rejecting their parents' traditions, who were shocked by these Jesus freaks who performed mass baptisms while drumming and dancing. They were shocked, too, by the strange orange Indian robes and shaved heads of the Hare Krishnas who chanted the same song over and over again at bus stops and on street corners. Contrary to the work ethic of previous generations, young people involved in this movement believed that they could achieve happiness and success by doing, well literally nothing, and meditation and the destruction of the ego were held up as an important stop on this new path to enlightenment, with thousands flocking toward the Transcendental Meditation Center, a center that eventually began promising the powers of levitation by simply clearing the mind. People who lived with Manson on the ranch and in the desert denied that they were a violent group. Who's playing? Those are the whole is that we were all we was doing out there was playing or you know well, what kind of guy was telling? he's a good person a very good person he's of peace more after this plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now, back to the show. As these new philosophies spread without too much pushback, the nation was suddenly shocked by reports of the utter carnage that the Manson family had wreaked on Cielo Drive in Beverly Hills in a two-night spree that would become known as the Tate-LaBianca Murders. Once they were apprehended, they discovered that Charles Manson appeared to be a kind of leader— but that he had not committed any of the murders by his own hand, leading prosecuting attorney Vincent Bugliosi to spin a whopper of a story, with Manson as a sinister mastermind who believed he was Jesus, hearing hints of a race war in Beatles songs, able to control his followers by brainwashing them into his brand of philosophical environmental spiritualism that had become so deeply popular with the youth. This sensationalist narrative was easily accepted by Americans, but it was not accepted as a defense for the murderer's actions but the interesting part was that Manson was convicted of first-degree murder, basically through mind control. Those who had committed the murders with their own hands were still found guilty too, but it was clear to the culture at large that this Manson family were certainly far from the people that they were before meeting this Charles Manson as they stood over a pregnant woman, killing her and her unborn child with absolutely no remorse and with extreme brutality. Just a few years later, the country would encounter another pivotal moment in brainwashing history as reports of a rogue heiress-turned-brainwashed domestic terrorist flooded the news, showing a photograph of a blonde socialite brandishing an assault rifle. The hunt for her eventually culminating in an L.A. shootout broadcast on live TV. The obvious conclusion is that the Los Angeles police have indeed found the nesting place of uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army, and there's not much left of it now. There's not much left of it now, Bob. Formed in 1973, the SLA was led by a black man named Donald DeFries, who was a student of the Black Cultural Association while in prison, locked up after a gun battle with police. There he met Berkeley students who were visiting prisoners, mostly white and upper middle class leftists who believed that the revolution must be induced by any means necessary. As their name reflected, they believed in symbiosis and had a lofty goal of uniting all races and genders and creating a union to fight for the causes of feminism, civil rights, and against capitalism and fascism. Death to the fascist insect that preys on the life of the people, proclaimed their motto. In order to fund their activism, the SLA began robbing banks in the Bay Area as they schemed their big mission to assassinate the California head of state penitentiaries. But fearing that their action could harm inmates, they shifted attention to California's first black superintendent, Marcus Foster, and used bullets tipped with cyanide to murder him. Why? Because they mistakenly thought Marcus to be a fascist, because he was in the process of mandating ID cards for all students. But in reality, it was Marcus Foster who opposed the implementation of the ID cards. Two SLA members were arrested and convicted. Hoping at first to get their comrades out of prison, they violently kidnapped socialite Patty Hearst, the granddaughter of famous media mogul and cultural architect, the creator of yellow journalism himself, William Randolph. Hearst. Unable to negotiate a trade for their friends, they instead demanded the Hearst provide $400 million toward a Robin Hood-esque goal of feeding thousands on welfare, leading Patty's father to actually set up a program to do just that. In a striking cameo, Jim Jones of Jonestown fame walked in at one point and apparently immediately tried to run the program himself. The Hearsts were not able to cough up 400 million as they were less exorbitantly wealthy than the SLA assumed. And though this $2 million endeavor to feed the hungry was relatively successful, Patty and DeFries each issued angry communiques calling the effort, quote, a sham, with Patty also announcing that she had willingly pledged herself to the SLA and would now be known as Tanya. Greetings to the people. This is Tanya. For those people who still believe that I am brainwashed or dead, I see no reason to further defend my position. Consciousness is terrifying to the ruling class, and they will do anything to discredit people who have realized that the only alternative to freedom is death, and that the only way we can free ourselves of this fascist dictatorship is by fighting, not with words, but with guns. I am a soldier in the people's army. The SLA wanted to hold Patty up as a kind of revolutionary figurehead, and they cased banks for potential heists specifically for their video surveillance systems so they could put the heiress front and center, especially of the now infamous Hibernia Bank robbery of April 1974, in which the SLA stole $10,000 and in which two bystanders were shot. From that heist, we got that famous surveillance picture of Patty Hearst holding the assault rifle, appearing completely complicit in the SLA's action. Some of these bank casings were actually performed by Patty herself, as the notes about bank personnel and bank layout, handwritten in her personal loping private girl school scrawl, would later reveal. At the same time she was casing Banks, the FBI was casing her, and after a long year of nothing, they were finally able to locate the SLA's hideout in suburban LA. But Patty wasn't there. In fact, she was with her two original kidnappers hanging out at Disneyland. But Donald DeFries and the other SLA members were not about to let the FBI take them down, and they returned fire, leading to the largest police shootout in American history, culminating with a house fire that killed all seven SLA members present, including DeFries. In September of 1975, after 19 months of traversing the country with the SLA, Patricia Campbell Hurst was tracked down in a San Francisco apartment and arrested on charges of armed robbery. Maintaining her allegiance to the SLA, Patty smiled and raised a clenched fist in apparent solidarity. The court proceedings that ensued were called at the time the trial of the century and saw an entirely different Patty Hearst, one who described months of torment at the hands of those she had once called her comrades. She accused them of locking her blindfolded in a closet, sexually assaulting her and threatening her life on multiple occasions, and alluded to being covertly dosed with LSD, all as a means of coercing her into joining their cause." At her trial, Patty was represented by F. Lee Bailey, who also represented O.J. Simpson and Sam Shepard, and was also in the military during the Cold War brainwashing panic. Their defense centered around proving that Patty had been a victim of brainwashing, of Stockholm Syndrome, or POW Survival Syndrome, with Bailey also frequently stating, somewhat inconsistently, that she did only what she needed to do to survive. Apparently, people weren't buying it, especially because it seemed that she had had a consensual relationship with an SLA member and had expressed her love on multiple occasions, especially by keeping a charm that he had given her. It was a bad look for Patty, this rich girl who had joined a leftist army in the midst of all this political domestic terrorism that Americans were freaking out about. Following an unusually short two-month trial and less than a single day of jury deliberation, Patty was found guilty and sentenced to seven years, interestingly, with one juror crying during the verdict. The very next year, 900 members of the communist cult known as the People's Temple committed a mass suicide in their commune that had been moved from California to Guyana. By drinking cyanide-laced flavor aid, which was mistakenly reported as the brand name Kool-Aid, this tragedy gave us the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, as a metaphor for falling prey to brainwashing. It was this singular cultural shock, the pictures of 900 dead, that would pivot the public's opinion about brainwashing, actually leading President Carter to commute Patty Hearst's sentence, less than two years after she was convicted. And this idea of the victim of mind control would be cemented yet again. With the Manson murders and Patty Hearst's conversion and now Jonestown all sparking panic that anyone's children could fall prey to a cult, One man stood out as a kind of anti-guru, one who would finally address this baffling new cultural phenomenon with a process he called deprogramming. Ted Patrick grew up with a speech impediment, a condition for which he claimed he was taken to witch doctors and voodoo practitioners. Ted deprogrammed both teenagers and adults who were involved in cults like the Children of God and the Hare Krishnas. Through a personal run-in with the Children of God cult, he began to conceptualize the tactics of cult leaders, giving more breadth and understanding around just how people agree to their own submission. A process known as love bombing was often the beginning, a profound sense of finding true connection, often first with a charismatic and extremely confident leader, and then with the other members of the group. After they're reeled in with this profound love, as well as these brand new philosophies, then comes the othering of non-cult members, a kind of cultivated suspicion, along with drug use and sex, often non-consensual. Verbal and abusive coercive treatment, as well as sometimes even death threats, create a breakdown of the personal understanding of both the self and the world at large. There were success stories, people who believed they owed their life to his methods, and others that believed that they were worse off after meeting Ted. This is because Ted personally kidnapped people up to the age of 35, one even on live TV, pulled into cars with family members inside that paid him thousands of dollars to convert them back to the children they knew. These deprogramming methods were made up of effective pointed questions meant to crack the spell of brainwashing to bring members back to critical thinking. But sometimes Patrick went as far as holding victims for days or even weeks in a room, tying them to beds with reports of verbal and even physical abuse taking place. See, there were certainly some of these victims that were simply making conscious life changes that their families didn't agree with. For example, in 1990, a 32-year-old Amish woman named Elma Miller, along with her nine-year-old daughter, were kidnapped by Ted after Elma left her husband and took her daughter to join a more liberal sect. Ted was paid by this angry former husband and her brother to bring her back. Obviously, cult groups at this time did not like the man they dubbed Black Lightning, and both cult members he kidnapped, as well as the groups that they came from, leveled charges against Ted Patrick. But in radical and precedent-setting trials, judges and juries wavered back and forth on the constitutionality of what he was doing. Was he infringing on these people's freedom of religion, or was he giving them back the freedom of thought that had been taken from them? After a few short stints in prison, Ted continued his work up through the Satanic Panic, where in a documentary called Deprogrammed, filmmaker Mia Donovan interviews her brother, who, as a metalhead teenager, was tied to a chair for five days by Ted after he first rid him of all the Satanic posters and other artifacts in his bedroom. Of course, his parents believed he'd been kidnapped by our favorite moral panic, satanic cults. If you listen to our series on satanic panic, you'll remember that the form of mind control everyone was obsessed with in the 80s and 90s was Satan and how he was controlling the young through cartoons, music, toys, and games. This teenager was not in a cult, and it's clear all these years later from the documentary that he has lasting trauma from Ted Patrick's controversial methods. In the midst of all this, in 1993, there was a contentious ATF siege on the Waco, Texas cult known as the Branch Davidians. They were led by their messiah, a man named David Koresh, who authorities knew was marrying, as he said, underage girls and then sexually assaulting them. Also, the Branch Davidians were hoarding a lot of guns. Because the horrific and problematic siege was led by the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm Agency, conspiracy theorists believed that this was proof that the government was coming to take their guns too. These theories that included a shadow government's mind control over the people was not helped by the very real revelations of MKUltra. Okay, I'll admit that I once believed that fluoride in the public's water weakened the brain and made it vulnerable to elite manipulation by the Illuminati. Hear more about that and the conspiracy theory at large on our Illuminati episode. This concept of brainwashing that verges on magical has been rejected by most modern psychologists, but it's a controversial and emotional topic, and rightly so. It's clear that a radical change can happen to anyone under the right circumstances. The story of mind control helps us deal with the heaviness of a person choosing to inhabit a different reality suddenly, to have a change in values and opinions, ones that go against the status quo and certainly against their families and sometimes even against their own well being But people choose to make radical changes with full agency. And they also choose to express themselves in ways that might make them seem like they're in a cult, like all our satanic teenager friends. But other times, they're coerced by abusive and manipulative tactics, by a kind of emotional terrorism. Programs like the one I talked about in the beginning of this episode present a kind of emotionlessness as a benefit. They say that by disconnecting from meaning and selfhood and even emotion itself, these practices can provide freedom from suffering. More after this. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in Bigger Than Ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. Uh, it covers up the other dimension, the deeper knowing, when you can be with a tree and join with the tree in that become aware of that space of stillness in which the tree exists. Fabulously rich modern guru Eckhart Tolle's books on consciousness and presence did give me at least the temporary gift of listening to my inner critic and knowing that another part of me has the power to quiet the endless and negative chatter in my head and most likely in yours too. As a spinoff from Freud, he called that voice in your head the ego, and he called that other part of you that can listen to your own thoughts the true self. And that way, you can be present with the beauty of the world without being distracted by all of your critiques. Like the many readers who attest to this new experience of presence, this revelation made the colors of the world brighter, made me feel like a part of the world, and gave me a brief peace unlike any I had found before. But if you watch Eckhart Tolle talk, he certainly has the glazed-over look that so many use to characterize the eyes of those in a cult. And in my research, I was pretty shocked to find recent studies into the possible adverse effects of meditation, essentially what Eckhart was recommending. Apparently, it can lead to paranoia, anger, fear, and even physical pain, something that was noticed by ancient Buddhist traditions that called attention to what they called Zen sickness. This thing called thinking has long been the enemy of most, if not all, spiritual practices. In many Christian communities, thinking critically is how the devil gets a hold of your mind. In many forms of Buddhism and Hinduism, it's thinking that creates suffering, and the state of thoughtlessness is said to produce enlightenment or nirvana and freedom from painful emotions. But sometimes people find themselves free as well from the kind of emotions they need and want. In a 1970s book by Flo Conway and Jim Seigelman called Snapping, there are multiple interviews with people involved in things like Transcendental Meditation that, after doing it for long enough, found that they no longer really cared about anything. Not their families, not their jobs, not their interests, because, after all, life is empty and meaningless, and it's empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. I think of the Manson family, who it seems thought themselves into an emotionless nightmare, continuously spurred on toward an elevated consciousness that somehow eventually rendered them capable of horrific murders. They seem to delight in their own brutality, to almost play in the blood. As someone who's written extensively about Charles Manson, my personal theory is that he was most skilled at breaking down the conventions, the assumptions, and the very basis of his followers' belief systems and certainly this concept of right and wrong as defined by our culture. All things could be changed from within, he said, and change they did, their minds expanding through constant acid and orgies, which often included these underaged and impressionable girls who are getting farther and farther from the shared reality of the rest of the world, living in what they felt was the superior and true reality revealed to them by this lifetime con man's dangerously attractive hippie rhetoric. Because what if there's no such thing as morality? Or what if their morality looks entirely different from the rest of the world? These leaders normalize the fucked up shit they do, like sexual assault and violence, all in the name of some kind of mission. It's hard to explain and I don't even fully get it. It's not necessarily their minds that change, it's their reality. And like the behaviorists once believed, personality and behavior are shaped by our reality. So if it's altered by radical thinking or even non-thinking, it can put a person in an entirely different and insular world that shares very little in common with the outside. Suddenly, this leader and this group are the only people in the world that truly understand you. And so, when someone tries to leave the group, it creates a crack in the middle of their reality. And they've put so much of their life into this group. They've abandoned their families. They've given up their homes and all their money. And though it's a much more mild example, I think that's why Peggy couldn't deal with me leaving. She couldn't deal with the idea that what she was doing could have problems. She couldn't deal with the fact that the leader of this self-help program might not be the savior she was looking for. And that's the hardest part of all, because don't we all want to be saved? Peggy, if you're out there, despite your actions, I get it now. And I really do hope you found the peace that you were looking for. Culturally, it seems that the panic around cults, or as academics call it, new religious movements, also express a fear we all share of being controlled in ways we cannot see. And by pointing to these extreme events that splash across the news, we feel that we ourselves would never drink that Kool-Aid, or Flavor-Aid, I should say, that we are too smart to be brainwashed by anything. But still, it appears that a great deal of Americans on both sides of our polarized political system were victims of a kind of mind control during the 2016 election, sucked into divisive memes and false. Statistics on Facebook, hysterical accusatory propaganda employed by a foreign power meant to exploit our emotions. And since the beginning of this country, all citizens have been programmed by America, once by the Puritans' bogus story of the city on the hill, and now by the sweeping flags that wash across football stadiums, military jets triumphantly cutting through the sky with an intimidating growl, our hands over our hearts as we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the flag, to what many believe is undoubtedly and unquestionably the greatest country Country in the world. We live in the constructed reality of America. After all, you can't spell culture without cult. As we grow, we're indoctrinated, too, by our parents, by pop culture, by politics and social norms. And, of course, by the long-term forces of racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia that conservatives and liberals alike, and yes, also me, have all inherited. Forces that often live in our subconscious and control us in ways we don't even notice. At the close of this season, I am left with the eerie question of just how much control we truly have when it comes to what we think and how we behave. Are our thoughts and behaviors simply instinctual and animalistic reactions like evolutionary psychologists believe? Are we simply filled to the brim with these cognitive biases left over from our hunter-gatherer lives? Or do we contain this human potential, this potential to change, and the ability to use our minds to change the world? Making this show has been the greatest opportunity I have ever been given, and I take it seriously— But I don't move through this work unaffected, and especially right now, in my exhaustion and all my existential questions, it's so attractive to imagine a kind of life where I don't have to think. Because thinking is hard, thinking is stressful, and thinking often hurts. Today I feel like yelling, give me a guru who is literally anyone but myself someone tell me how to deal with this reality, how to save this world I love so much. In this unknowable universe, we lack concrete answers to the terrifying questions of how did we get here and what does it all mean, if it means anything at all those who present a kind of larger-than-life, narcissistic confidence, who seem to have a crystal-clear picture of what reality is, who is the enemy, and what exactly is right or wrong. And this confidence brings us a dark kind of comfort. It's how we got to where we are, with this terrifyingly confident leader we have, with so many rejecting the pain of critical thinking or being unable to access the type of material that makes them even know that they can. Instead, many of us choose to embrace fake news, a reality that we can hold onto in which we're right, undoubtedly we see, too, a kind of mind control in these increasingly meaningless buzzwords that stand in for the complication and nuance of the human experience. This isn't a call for a sappy and impossible unity or a comparison of philosophies. It's simply a long-term heartache that I want to recognize that our young and problematic country has given to each of us. One I don't know how to heal. Once again, I'm seeing all of these articles and tweets and Instagram posts with meditation being trumpeted as a singular savior with CEOs and celebrities transcendentally meditating on their lunch breaks, with some even promising that hint of goopish bullshit we covered in our quackery episode that meditation can take the place of medication in the mental health field. Seen by fervent proponents as a negative kind of mind control, medication can certainly be negative if it's the wrong prescription or used for those who don't actually need it, just the way that meditation can. I tried for my whole life, probably like some of you, to combat depression and anxiety through therapy, therapy groups, self-help books, books on psychology, books on spirituality, 12-step programs, meditation, guided meditation, yoga, somatic psychology, churches ranging from Catholic to Unitarian, as well as a smattering of other various New Age practices, regression hypnotherapy, past life regression hypnotherapy, you name it, I tried it. Some of these methods have been vitally important in my emotional health, and in no way am I writing off these practices. But they're not the answer, they're not a savior. They're just a tool in your toolbox of being okay, As goes the brain chemistry in my family, I've always been prone to fantastical periods where the colors of everything are bright and kind, and I'm a lucky, love-filled puppy who cries at the vulnerable faces of random strangers on the street, knowing deep down that the flat line of depression would be coming back soon, any minute, to mute my world into a gnawing blankness. For so many years, I didn't understand what was wrong with me. I didn't understand that it was something I inherited. But in the end, it was the right medication that gave me back my own mind control. After, I accepted that I didn't have control. I felt that the self-help program I spoke of at the beginning of this episode would save me. I thought Eckhart Tolle would save me. I thought leaving everyone I knew and living on the road for months at a time would save me. Hell, I even seriously considered being a monk for a while. I thought maybe I could control my thoughts so that life could be empty and meaningless and empty and meaningless that it's empty and meaningless. But sometimes nothingness can terrify us, can lead us to that zen sickness of confronting an unknown self and seeing the world suddenly in a completely new and sometimes destabilizing world. It's true that sometimes nothingness hurts less than the complicated question of meaning. Just like in season one, I want to turn to poet Rainier Maria Rilke, who talked of our traditions that are passed down to us like a letter unopened. Without opening the letter of ourselves, without listening to our thoughts the way the New Age has sometimes helpfully suggested, we are controlled by our subconscious and our biases. We're controlled by outside forces. We are puppets to whatever we're surrounded by, whatever we're raised to be and to believe. Opening my own letter has often been painfully difficult, discovering my biases and false beliefs, my memories and my own darkness, the red vibrating anger, the stone well of sadness, but also the wonderful shine of this sometimes admittedly beautiful world. Love is there. Glowing quietly underneath our apathy, underneath our righteous anger, underneath our overwhelming sadness. There is a place at the bottom of it all, the solid earth of our hearts, a green field alive with wildflowers. My wish for you is that however you find it, you find it, and that you live there, at least sometimes, In the warm sunlight of our human potential. This was our season two finale of American Hysteria. We'll be back to our regular schedule in mid January, but until then, make sure you stick with us because we've got a little talk show brewing and it's coming every two weeks. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by the extremely exhausted, but also decently happy Chelsea Weber-Smith, assistant produced by Derek Smith, who listens to my rambling ideas and then brings me down to earth, produced by Clear Como Studios, aka Rod Rodriguez, who's responsible for the whole vibe of American Hysteria, and often acts as a savior to the show. If you're looking for a great producer for your podcast, then head to our show notes to find Clear Como's information. Assisting with research and sometimes writing is the amazing Riley Smith, my brother, my lifetime collaborator, and a true inspiration to American Hysteria because he really showed me the value of knowing a lot of stuff. If you're looking for a great researcher for your podcast or another project, then head to our show notes and you can find Riley's email there. Our voice acting's by the hilariously theatrical and brilliant Will Rogers, my co-producer at Skylark. And a big thanks to Jake and Tristan Weholt, who let me record in their basement in a place we call Densmore Studios. I want to also sincerely thank Miranda Zickler, who's been my rock throughout this season. You'll find the both of us chatting soon on our little talk show coming every two weeks. The nonprofit we want to highlight this week is called the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. They're committed to alleviating the suffering caused by mental illness by awarding grants that will lead to advances and breakthroughs in scientific research. Help others help us understand what's going on in our brains. Go to bbrfoundation.org to donate or check the link in our show notes. And finally, I want to thank you for going on this journey with me, for telling me the things you love, The things that have been helpful, as well as the ways I can improve the things I may have done wrong. I believe this is what community is the community we're hardwired to have. We care about each other and we hold each other accountable. Speaking of community, I'd love if you followed us on social media. It's wacky, it's zany, it's stupid, it's smart, it's fun. I don't know. Just please do it. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. I can't really explain how much meaning American hysteria has given me. So let's all go out there and make our own.